So Money, episode 44, Manisha Takor. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Good day to all of you. Welcome back to So Money. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Now, I've been privileged to have many amazing women on the show already. I've had everyone from Jackie Zayner to Danielle Laporte, Jean Chatsky, and today's guest is no exception. Manisha Takor is the founder of MoneyZen.com and a financial literacy advocate for women. She's co-authored two critically acclaimed personal finance books, On My Own Two Feet, which is a modern girl's guide to personal finance, and Get Financially Naked, How to Talk Money with Your Honey. Manisha is a chartered financial analyst who spent over two decades working in the financial services industry. And in 2009, she launched her financial education practice. And more recently in 2012, she started her independent wealth management practice, MoneyZen.com, which recently merged with Buckingham Family of Financial Services. Today, in addition to her current role with Buckingham as a Director of Wealth Strategies for Women, she also serves as a consultant to TIAA Craft's Women's Engagement Initiative, and she's on the National Board of the Girl Scouts. Three takeaways from our interview today. How Manisha got hooked on personal finance. I always like to hear how it all began. Her best stress reduction secret and her go-to investing approach. It's an approach that she only recently realized is the best way to go. And given that she is a you know certified financial analyst, you're going to want to listen to this. I My ears definitely perked up. And uh, given that she's got so many years in the industry, you want to hear what she has to say. So without further ado, here is the lovely Manisha Takwar. Manisha Takwar, thank you so much for joining me on So Many. I have wanted to speak with you one-on-one for so many years. Arnush, thank you so much for having me, and I feel the exact same way about you. (laughs) Wonderful, wonderful. Well, part of why I wanted you on the show, in addition to all your credentials, you're obviously a leader in this space, in the financial space, but you come to this world, this financial world, with, I think, a unique approach, a very holistic approach. And I love also that you focus on women. So let's start there. How did you get to this point of not just helping people with their money, but specifically women and specifically with this approach, this this Zen approach to personal finance? So for me, it all started where it, it coalesced when I was spending my junior year abroad at Oxford, and I came across a copy in the library of Virginia Woolf's book, A Room of One's Own. And in it, she talks so eloquently about how a woman can't really be free to unleash her creative and intellectual potential unless she has some money and and some space of her own. Um, And that so deeply resonated with me that um, as I started pursuing career paths, I just kept coming back to that point and wanting to help more and more women have that feeling. And throughout my career, I had 
um, in the early days, spent most of my time on the institutional side of kind of what what you could call the, quote, Wall Street world, and it was very, very male-dominated. And as I approached my 40s, I realized that um, there was time and need for a whole new approach to money that I think will ultimately benefit both men and women, but which I found in particular uh, women are resonating with right now. And that's something that is transparent, that is simple, that is clear, that is authentic, that's in line with your values. Mm -hmm. And that's how the concept of, of Money Zen came about. What would you say is the biggest mistake institutions make when they're trying to appeal to females uh, in terms of getting their business to help manage their money, to help guide their financial decisions? I love that you asked this question because it is now my job to do nothing but think about that 24-7. I recently merged my independent wealth management practice, Money Zen, into the much larger Buckingham Family of Financial Services, and I'm now, my, my new role is as Director of Wealth Strategies for Women across the $25 billion Buckingham entity. And what I have come to see and hear over and over again, it's a couple of amazingly basic things for a new sh- When I say them, you'll be like, why hasn't this happened? <laughs> so what we women want is we want somebody to listen to us. We want them to actually hear what our specific problem is mm-hmm. or issue or concern or fear and give us a tailored response to how to address that specific fear, not not sell us some general product. Um, we tend to like higher touch points um, in order to feel comfortable that our advisors are really on top of our finances and truly know our goals and who we are. We like to hear from them a, a more often than men do, mm-hmm. um, not necessarily in big, heavy, deep ways, but we like to have that increased connectivity. And we want to be educated. We don't want somebody to just tell us, well, this is what's good for you. We want to understand and be part of the process. And then the big overarching umbrella is that money for so many of us women is about so much more than power or things or status. It's a tool that we can use to improve the lives of our family and the world. And so we want our financial advice to be more deeply rooted into the the things that really matter to us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I couldn't agree more. I was just talking to Barbara Stanny. As you know, she's a, a colleague of ours. She's also an author in the financial wellness space. And she talks a lot about this too, this idea that women, while men may look at money as a, uh, a way to enhance their power, for women, that's not really the priority. Uh, although it, I think she's trying to educate people more on the idea that women more on the idea that power is not that bad of a thing. I think power sometimes gets this negative connotation in our in our world in our society. But totally true that women want to use money as a means to a, a better end. Well, and what's interesting, and if anybody listening to this hasn't heard of Barbara's work, I highly recommend reading her books. She also runs some workshops that are um, some of the most creative ways I have seen to help women really feel more comfortable with exactly what you just said, Farnoosh, the power component of money. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, she's she is... What she's observed time and again, and, and, and I have too, is that when women step into their financial knowledge and their financial strength, they are more powerful um, in so many different ways. And I think the difference is 
the male definition of power tends to be power over. I have power over you. Mm-hmm. Whereas the female definition of power tends to be, I have power too. I have power to do something, to generate profits, to come up with a better business line. To So it's not always philanthropic, but it's, it's, it's power with a purpose. Right, right. As opposed to power as a competitive tool. Mm-hmm. And it's power to serve. A, a, and on every level, a a not just the not poor for profit level, but a for profit level mm-hmm. too to serve yourself, right? Um, as well as others. Well, Manisha, let's talk about your personal financial journey, your philosophies, your failures, your successes. I cannot wait to ask you these questions. So, are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. So, first question I ask all my guests, it kind of sets us off, sets the stage. Your financial philosophy, Manisha, this is a mantra, a money mantra that helps guide your money decisions. And you're very conscious of it and you're, you're very protective of it. What is it? Mine is simplify your finances, simplify your life. Mm. And for me, what I mean by that is. I think that what's happened is the financial world has become explosively complex and we quite literally are missing um, the forest for the leaves. And the analogy that I like to use is if we can reframe and start thinking about our, our relationship to money as a tree, so that the trunk it, and the roots are our core values and our beliefs and what we really care about. And then there are a couple of key branches that need to be tended to, how much we earn, how much we save, how much we spend, how, how we invest, um, how we protect, whether it's identity theft or debt management or um, credit card use or insurance. And then the, the last branch I call reflect, which is um, really making sure that whether you're investing in your business um, or you're investing in family or you're investing philanthropically, that that's rooted back in, in with your authentic beliefs. And learning the skills around each of those six financial tasks, earn, save, spend, invest, protect, and reflect, feels so much easier than turning on the financial news and mm-hmm. hearing the latest yammer about the Swiss franc or, you know, wh- what's happening with deflation. And, and so I guess it boils down to this. If you can find the intersection of what is important to focus on and what matters, that's, that's where you should be spending the bulk of your time. And, and financial artist Carl Richards has done a great job of, of making a visual depiction of this. He has a circle. One says um, things that matter, and the other says things that you can control. And it's the intersection between what matters and what you can control um, that he argues one should focus on. And that really, to me, visually embodies my mantra, simplify your finances and simplify your life. Don't you think that there is an incentive to make the financial world seem impossible to to master because let's be honest institutions benefit from that advisors sometimes benefit from that to 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 create this illusion that managing your money is really challenging there are a lot of intricacies it's hard to to map it all out well and i think what to me what this all boils down to is the debate between suitability and fiduciary a lot of people don't realize this, but there are two standards to which investment advisors are held. One is called suitability. The other is called fiduciary. 
the way I like to describe it is suitability basically says your advisor has to do um, what recommend things that are suitable for you, but not necessarily in your best interest. Fiduciary is a whole other standard which says your advisor is legally obliged to do what's in your best interest. Probably 80% of the advisors in the industry work under a suitability standard, and that's because the large institutions came about with financial advisors really using them as salespeople. They would create product and then pump them through this team of salespeople, which they've come to call financial advisors or financial consultants. And every time there's legislation introduced in Washington to try and change this and have the whole industry, you know, if you're going to be a financial advisor, you must be a fiduciary. These large companies scream and yell because that would impact dramatically their ability to generate profits. And so I think a big part of the reason that it is so darn complicated is because we do not have uniform legislation that requires every single person putting themselves out as a financial advisor or a wealth manager to operate as a fiduciary. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think the more people who realize this, the quicker we will get this changed. And a great place you can educate yourself on this is a PBS frontline video called The Retirement Crisis. And if you just Google that, in 45 minutes, take your blood pressure medicine, because it will definitely make your blood boil. You'll learn a lot about why the industry is so complicated. Yes. Well, I get this question a lot on the show and through my website, which is that I'm thinking about working with a financial advisor. I don't think I'm I'm rich enough, wealthy enough. I don't know if I have enough assets under management, so to speak. Uh, what do you say to these folks? I, I think it's a misleading thing that you need to be quote unquote well off in order to have uh, a financial advisor. Oh, I could not agree with you more, Farnoosh. It's like saying I can't go to the doctor and uh, for a checkup until I'm in perfect physical health. Like, no, <laughs> you go to the doctor to help you get in good health. It's the same thing with your financial well-being. And again, up until recently, the industry really hasn't done a great job of making it easy. And um, to be blunt, that's because it. it the way most folks charge for advice in this industry is a percent of assets under management. And so there's an incentive to make the assets that you, your minimum asset that that you will take to take on a client as large as possible. So uh, thankfully times are changing and there are many more options. Um, I'm thrilled to be part of a, a family, the Buckingham family of financial services where we have wealth managers that can help clients with $80,000 in assets or more and have an individual one-on-one relationship. Um, we also help traditional high net worth individuals, but that $80,000 level, and who knows, in the future, hopefully we can figure out how to get that even lower, is something that really excites me um, as more and more firms on Wall Street are you know, looking for $3 million, $5 million, $10 million and above clients. And even when you're first getting started out and $80,000 in retirement savings seems like, you know, Mount Everest, there's still other options. I love um, Cheryl Garrett's uh, network. Um, If you go to the Garrett Planning Network with two R's and two T's um, website, you can find an hourly fee-based financial planner. And in your early days, an hour or two with a planner who will charge anywhere from 100 to $250 an hour can really help you get on the right track. Um, and then many large um, entities like 
um, Fidelity or Vanguard or Schwab um, will also afford you the ability to talk to an individual there to help get some guidance when you're just starting out. But really, we all want to have financial well-being the way we all want to have physical well-being, and seeking professional advice and guidance around that um, is a natural part. So you do not need to be part of the 1%, so to speak, Mm -hmm. to be seeking out and receiving qualified financial advice. Yes, and I'm a big fan of the Garrett Planning Network. There's also NAPFA.org. So lots of resources out there for folks of any um, income range, asset range, to work with a fiduciary. So check out those sites. Thanks so much. Well, and if I could toss out one other furnace, just um, the BAM Alliance. Mm-hmm. Um, B, the website is the BAM, B-A-M, Alliance. Buckingham Asset Management Alliance. It's a network of now 150 independent fiduciary fee-only financial planners who use index funds and low-cost investment vehicles. We call it evidence-based investing. So that's another place where you can go on the website, type in your zip code, and get a list of um, 150 uh, firms um, that are um, modeling this new kind of um, client-centric, client-first Um, behavior that we're talking about. Manisha, take us down memory lane now. Let's uh, talk about little Manisha, mini Manisha. When you were growing up, what did you, well, let me rephrase. How, what is an experience that you had growing up, a financial experience that necessarily shaped the way that you approach money today? Okay, so this is going to sound totally geeky, but the, um, the biggest the most influential money memory I have, I must have been around 11 years old. My dad and I are sitting around the kitchen table. My dad's a CPA and at this point was um, uh, working in the treasury function of his, of, of his firm. And he sat me down with his HP-12C calculator and he showed me how to um, use it to compound out if I used my babysitting and my lawn mowing money to put into an IRA. At that time, you could put $2,000 a year. That was the max. And we compounded it out at 6%, 7%, 8% a year until I was 65. And when I saw the dramatic effect of starting early on your ending value, like just this light bulb went off in my head. And, you know, I guess it's Einstein who said compounding is the eighth wonder of the world. But to me, it was just so fascinating. And that was the moment that really hooked me on um, personal finance. And my passion around women is so many of us aren't, aren't given those messages early on. And the more women I can help understand at any age the power of starting to save and invest, um, that is just, it's a dream come true. But it all started with that at the kitchen table. How old were you? I think I was, we, we debate this in the household. I think I was around 11, um, somewhere between the ages of 10 and 12. Yeah. Um, and were you already curious about money at that age? I think kids are always curious about money in their own way, even as young as four, five, six years old. Once you start to witness how others live and how others choose to spend their money, you become fascinated by it. I was certainly fascinated by money, uh, I guess no surprise, but for you at that stage in your childhood, were you already conscious and, and excited about earning money or saving money or were you you know, hoarding your pennies in your piggy bank? Like what, where were you at this stage at 11 years old where your father obviously felt that it was 
that you would be receptive to this? Yeah, I think I think my saving gene was like on steroids or something because from a young age I used to love to do any kind of chore, earn money, um, and and save it. And I I think a lot of that came from my mom used to read me all these gender neutral books because um, I this was back in the early seventies and about how women can be anything they want to be. And I think somehow I absorbed these messages about saving and money being a, a, a tool to give you a voice and to give you choice and to give you options in your life. Um, but it's hard. Yeah, I'm 45 now, and so it's kind of revisionist history looking back. But that's how I'd like to remember it. <laughs> Are you right? Hello? Mm-hmm. Okay, sorry. I thought it sounded like you dropped out. Oh, no, I'm here. Okay. Um, well, good for your mom for reading you those gender-neutral books. That's a, that's a really good idea. Yeah, it was fascinating. It was, it was um, I wish I had caught on and there were, there were more available now, but it was, a, it was very, um, I think, part of the reason it never occurred to me not to pursue a career in the Wall Street world was because of those early discussions around money in our household and the early presentation of career paths in a very gender neutral way. And so it just never occurred to me that I shouldn't learn a lot about money and and love the world of high finance. I love that. Such a great, great lesson. All right, Manisha, let's talk about failure. Uh, This is probably one of my favorite questions, not because I, I like to obsess about bad things, but I love to hear about people's missteps and how they overcame them. That's really the other element to this. So talk about maybe a financial fail that, uh, you know, still to this day you recall and how you ultimately overcame it. So I have a, basically a running 20-year financial fail. Um, and that financial fail was that for a good chunk of my early adult life, I actually thought it was possible to beat the stock market. So I started off my career as what, what we call an active investor, meaning I used to study the financial statements of individual companies and try and identify um, using um, uh, at one point a slightly value-oriented approach, another time a growth-oriented approach, but trying to identify companies that I thought uh, would outperform the market. And I did that personally for my own money. And I also did that professionally as my career. I worked for four different, very large, um, uh, investment management firms that managed billions of dollars for corporations and endowments and foundations. And a light bulb finally went on as, uh, I got into my late thirties that active management is a loser's game, that once you subtract out the fees, especially in a world where information moves around so rapidly, it's exceptionally difficult for anyone to get an incremental advantage, that honestly, indexing is the way to go. It keeps costs low. Um, You participate in the market as a whole, and the evidence unequivocally shows that it trumps active management. And so my switch from being um, an active investor, um, which I was for you know a good 20 years of my career, to being what I'm, some people call passive, I prefer to use the term evidence-based investor, um, was sort of the uh, financial equivalent of moving from being a carnivore to a vegan. So quite dramatic. 
Do you have any assets or do you recommend any assets that are anything but passively uh, managed? No, I don't. I feel so strongly about this furniture. I feel like the corrosive effect of fees is enormous. Mm. Every incremental 1% you pay in, in expense ratios or management fees on active product over a typical investment life cycle will eat up 20% of your portfolio. So I meet people who will come to us at Buckingham and we'll take a look at their statements and we'll dig through and see what, what are their all in fees. And we'll see people paying two or 3% when you include the fee to the advisor, plus the fee for the different active funds that they're in. And when you compare that to a portfolio that can, that is, being charged, let's say, 1% all-in for advice and guidance versus 3% all-in for advice and guidance, that 3% portfolio, if it earns the same rates of return, will give you 40% less because it has two percentage points more in fees. I mean, it's it's mind-blowing, the math of fees. And so besides the fact that it active investing is like looking for a four-leaf clover, but now the field is the globe. Um, and it's huge, and everybody's hunting. Um, so, uh, no, I use purely index-based um, investments. That is really, really good to hear. And I'm even look, even Manisha Takor, who is a financial advisor to many and and revered in this industry, can admit that this is a mistake that you made. And I think that just it shows how many people must be making this mistake. It's so interesting to me. People think that looking for the next Tesla or the next Twitter, the next hot investment is the way to make big bucks. The surefire way to make big bucks is to cut your fees down. I mean, that's a guaranteed return. Um, And, you know, index-based funds will be anywhere from a tenth of a percent to the most specialized might be a half a percent. Um, And so when you compare that to active funds that can have – fees three, four, five times that, um, it really is an eye-opener. All right, Manisha, let's talk about um, a, uh, a success. Let's flip it. A financial success that you are proud of and want to share. And, you know, it could be something as minor as getting a discount that you wanted uh, on something recently or something more profound, but a so money moment that you're extremely proud of. So seven years ago, um, my husband and I became completely debt-free, paid off our mortgage, and people said, you are insane. That is the most financially stupid thing a person could do because you could put that money in the market and you could earn so much more. And I have to tell you, being debt-free to me has been the proudest, um, the proudest money moment of my life. Um, it is. I feel so liberated to know that we do not owe any monthly payment to anyone. Um, it, every monthly payment that we have is by choice, whether it's you know paying our utilities or the cable bill. It, that's by choice, and the the feeling of um, security that comes from being debt free is something that I had a hunch because I grew up in a a family that valued being debt-free. But there's so much pressure for people to carry on mortgages. I'm seeing many, many retirees heading into retirement with mortgages, whereas years ago, you know, it would have been taboo to have done that. You would have paid it off. 
Um, and interestingly, this issue about being debt-free, just for me to hammer it home for listeners, um, a couple years ago, more recently, I actually crossed over um, the, the uh, investment number that I needed to be able to fund my living expenses off my interest and dividends. And that had been a lifelong goal of mine, to be able to accrue enough money that I did not have to work, but I, any work I did from that point forward was because I wanted to. And you would have thought that would have been my like euphoric, whoa, I've arrived moment, that it was actually earlier when becoming debt-free. And um, I have, it's really helped me see how pervasive and stressful having excess debt is and the degree to which in so many subtle ways we encourage people to do it, whether it's in buying homes or paying more in college than career paths might justify. Um, and there are a lot of tense and stressed people out there that need help. And um, I, I think if we could just shift our attitude towards debt and think about it a little bit more as a four-letter word and help people understand how to use it judiciously, mm-hmm. um, so many people would feel a dramatic reduction in stress. You know, one of my guests once told me, imagine if we looked at credit as something that we are, uh, that we should be so privileged to have access to, and not that it is this entitled thing that we should assume banks should lend us and that we should get as much of it as we want. And that it, you know, as long as it's helping us to fulfill our dreams of going to school and buying a home and buying a car, that it's good debt. Uh, But, you know, there's a fine line between good debt and bad debt. Right. And, 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 and it's not to make some kind of blanket judgment on everyone should do this or everyone should do that. It's just giving people the tools so that each person can make the decision that's right for them and their family. That's, that's what I want to see. And this concept of thinking about it as a privilege. I love that. That's a beautiful way of framing it up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Credit as a privilege. I I've uh, adopted that saying ever since I, my guest told me it's, um, Melinda Emerson, actually. She's a small biz lady on Twitter. All right, Manisha, let's talk about your habits. We've all got them, right? Good and bad. But I want to focus on your positive financial habits. What's one that you think is um, worth teaching to the world? So I have this mental framework in my head of what I personally want out of life. And it's a triangle. Um, and ironically, I, I drew it on a cocktail napkin um, on the plane ride back from that year that I spent um, at Oxford. So I must have been like 20 years old back then. And I revisit it every year when I'm doing goal setting, see if I want to change anything about it. And, you know, 25 years later, I don't. So the triangle at the top says simplicity. In the bottom left-hand corner, it says small joys. And in the bottom right-hand corner, it says financial independence. And I have that as my guiding framework as I make any financial decision. I'm I'm always asking myself, is this going to decrease um, the simplicity of my life or decrease the small joys or will it increase? And in conjunction with that, I also do one other manual thing, which is that I track my spending. I, I can probably tell you within about $10 per year of accuracy what I've spent since 1992 when I graduated from undergrad. And that has helped me enormously, that mental framework and then just the, the years of this spending data so that as I've changed uh, jobs or 
uh, we've moved over time. I've, I've had such a clear understanding of how much money I need to spend in what areas to feel like I have an abundant life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it's, uh, not maybe a ritual in the traditional sense, but having, um, a mental framework in my mind of what I want my life to be like, and then doing the actual tactical tracking of my expenses, not to judge myself or make myself feel deprived, but to help me make smarter choices so that I'm getting more simplicity and small joys um, and staying on that path to financial independence. All right, Manisha, we're almost almost done here, but before we go, I want you to finish some sentences for me. All right, are you ready? I am ready. <laughs> if I won the lottery tomorrow, let's say $100 million, the first thing that I would do is? Set up a donor-advised fund and stop flying commercial. Oh, my gosh. That is so interesting. So enough people have now told me this, the, the whole idea of not flying commercial, <laughs> that I, I, I'm so curious about this. Like, what? I, I guess it is the ultimate luxury. I, I don't want my own plane, but I would, I would Charter. love to. To exactly, um, to not have to go through that. Um, those of us that are on the road a lot visiting clients, <laughs> it definitely, um, travel is not what it was 20 years ago. No, no, that's for sure. The one thing that I spend my money on that makes my life easier or better or both is? My cleaning lady, Dora. She is my angel. I love her. I don't know what our household would do without her. The one thing I wish I had known about money growing up is? Ooh, how it fuels sticky desires. And I mean that in kind of the, the Buddhist concept of how um, it can become a false god, chasing after money as your metric of success. It just, it's like stepping into a pot of honey that you just can't get yourself out of. It's just, it leads from one thing to the next. Why is that? Is that because... Um when you're focused just on money, you're sort of blinded by all of the excitement, opportunities around you, and you don't appreciate maybe the journey? Yeah, I, I think it's because it dis- the focus on money, and, and I love money. And again, I'm, my one of my key money goals in my life was to earn and save and invest enough so that I could live off my interest in dividends. So I'm not saying this from an anti-money perspective, but I think what happens is in the pursuit of money, we disassociate from ourselves and we also disassociate from one of the, the best parts, if not perhaps the whole meaning of life, which is joy and happiness. And so I feel like, um, money, um, is a tool, but, best use it's a tool to increase your personal happiness Mm -hmm. and to make a difference in the world which is also another way of increasing personal happiness all right so when you donate money manisha where do you like to donate to so i love to give money to organizations that financially empower women because i find that when you give to women the money keeps on giving. You know, and a classic example is micro lending, where we see that uh, money given to women is reinvested in families and communities, as opposed to money given to men, which is also often invested into um, alcohol and tobacco and other women, not necessarily the wives. Um, But just this this notion that when you when you invest in a woman, you you're investing in the globe. Yes, yes, here, here. And finally, Manisha, I'm so money because? 
So I think that since most of us get money through work, we can think about money as being a representation of our life's energy. And I feel like I'm so money because one of the things that I, I try and do is make sure that I'm always using and sharing that life's energy as wisely as I possibly can. Mm-hmm. Well, we thank you so much for your work and your contributions, Manisha. Tell us where we can find you, and uh, we will put those links as well on SoMoneyPodcast.com. My website is MoneyZen.com. And I just want to say to anyone who's listening that, again, I am so excited to be able to bring a fiduciary-based index fund, evidence-based, holistic financial planning solution to women. So if you are a woman with 80000 or more in assets and you've been looking for that type of advisory relationship, please come to moneyzen.com. We can have a chat and I can introduce you to the Buckingham family of financial services. Right on. I will be so excited to share this with listeners. Thank you so much, Manisha. Have a wonderful new year. Congratulations on all your new partnerships. Sounds tremendous. Arnish, great speaking with you. Have a wonderful 2015. That's a wrap, everyone. If you'd like to learn more about Manisha Takor, head over to moneyzen.com. She's also on Twitter, at Manisha Takor. And if you want to find out where to get the PBS Frontline video Manisha mentioned in the interview, as well as uh, Garrett Planning Network and napfa.org, we've got all of those links at somoneypodcast.com. And of course, there is also the transcript from this interview and the comments from this episode and all previous episodes. And as always, I want to hear from you guys. Weekends are for us. Send me your questions, your comments to somoneypodcast.com. Click on Ask Farnoosh and ask away about money, career, investing, uh, you know, the podcast. People have been asking me, you know, how do you put together the podcast? Give us your secrets. If you're curious about this stuff, uh, well, you can geek out with me. I'll totally give you some, uh, some insights. And uh, so do that. As I, as you know, I try to answer all the questions uh, the following weekend. And guys, really, really important. Um, I want to ask you for a favor. This podcast has had an amazing run. We are now two months into the show iTunes has recognized So Money as a new and noteworthy. We're consistently ranked high in all of our categories. However, in order to ensure that this podcast does not fall into the land of obscurity on iTunes, because as we know, there's a lot on iTunes and it's easy to get lost and swept under the rug. It's really important that you show your love for this podcast by going onto iTunes and leaving a quick review. It doesn't have to be long, just like one sentence, two sentences. It will be the single most important thing you can do to help this podcast, besides listening, of course. But leaving a review is instrumental. It is just really the most impactful thing that you can do to ensure that this podcast continues to be found organically and that iTunes recognizes it as a solid podcast and gives it the light and the love that it deserves. Um, So please do that. And when you do, really important, when you write the review, email me, farnoosh at somoneypodcast.com. I want to thank you. So thanks everyone for tuning in. Thanks in advance for leaving a review if you have the chance. And as always, I hope your day is so money. Money.